Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Guys, welcome to this episode of The Greatest Machine. I'm your host, Darius Machazi, and boy, do we have an amazing guest. Katie Milkman is in the house. What's up, Katie? Thanks for having me. Oh, man, I'm so pumped. Gosh, we've been waiting. I think we had something scheduled, and there was like a blow-up, and then here we are again. So we're on the schedule, ready to do an awesome podcast. Do you mind if I do a little bit of housekeeping, and then we'll uh, get going with the show? Go for it. All right. So for Greatness Machine listeners who are new to the show, we're about two things. People are living their passions, those creating greatness and doing so despite the odds. And Katie is neither short of passion nor greatness. So um, many of you guys don't know this, but we're, you know, we're buddies with Hala, Taha, and, and the Yap crew. And I, and I always have my team out there looking at, at the, the shows we respect most, Hala's being one of them. And, and my team brought me Katie and her work. And I was like, oh, yeah. Let's let's do this. So so she made the list, and we're like, all right, let's get let's let's devise our strategy. So my team reached out. Katie was so gracious to accept our invitation to the show, and so we're so pumped to have you here, Katie, to talk about all the amazing stuff you're doing. Um, I'm going to give your formal bio, and then and then I'd love to talk a little bit of origin story. Does that work for you? Sounds awesome. Awesome. So you guys, Katie Milkman, what a stud. She is a PhD from Harvard. She's also currently a professor at Wharton. We're here to talk about her book, uh, her award-winning book at that, which is one of Wall Street Journal best-selling, uh, best-selling book, How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. It was also named one of the eight best books for healthy living in 2021 by the New York Times. So super pumped to talk about that. We're going to be talking about her podcast, Choiceology, and then the work she's doing at Wharton. 
I am so pumped to have you here. I mean, we at The Greatness Machine are all about changing for the better. So I'd love, Katie, if you wouldn't mind, like maybe give us a little bit of your origin story. How'd you end up kicking all this ass in the world that you're doing at the Wharton School and with your book and podcast and all the great stuff? Well, I think that's a, a much too kind um, description of what I'm doing in the world. But um, <laughs> I ended up where I am because of a lot of accidents, which I bet is a story you hear frequently, um, a series of fortunate events. Um, so as an undergraduate, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I thought something applied, something with math, because that was what I was better at. And I uh, tried to take economics. And I have to tell you, I hated it, which is funny because now that's what I essentially do and teach. I thought it was the most useless subject I'd ever encountered because it was just filled with assumptions about human behavior that were inaccurate. People are optimal decision-making machines. Are you kidding? Have you met my roommates? Um, You know, we never make mistakes. We have perfect memory capacity. We're entirely selfish. We will always reach the right conclusion. None of this resonated with me. And so actually, I pretty promptly abandoned that plan and switched to become an engineer. Uh, I thought, look, the assumptions here are going to be valid as opposed to invalid. Um, But there was always an itch, I think, in the back of me to use the um, applied lens I had and the, the mathematical skills I developed to actually try to solve problems related to human nature, even though I'd abandoned economics for its flawed assumptions. Um, I fell in love with the process of doing research because I was forced to do research as an undergraduate. I had to write a senior thesis. I went to Princeton and that was a requirement. And uh, I had to invent one that integrated engineering and American studies, which was my minor which was really hard to do. I ended up doing a quantitative analysis of a decade of New Yorker fiction to try to figure out whether or not um, shifts in the editors changed the nature of what was getting published and also whether or not Hmm. authors actually write stories about the characters, um, characters who resemble them autobiographically. That may sound really far-fetched. It was a kind of a wacky thesis at the time. It actually got more attention than any other piece of research I've done since at the uh, the work was picked up by the New York Times. There was a cover story in the arts uh, section of the paper the day I graduated. And I was just floored by how many people were interested in understanding these wacky questions that I had generated by just sort of thinking about what was interesting to me and thinking about new methods that I could apply by bringing an interdisciplinary lens to um, those questions. Honestly, that's what fueled me to where I am today. That sort of I I ended up going to graduate school because I loved research. I found out there was this field that didn't make flawed assumptions about human nature, but instead tried to fix the flawed assumptions of economics. It's called behavioral economics. And all of that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't sort of initially uh, veered off course into engineering, but then had to do something unusual that showed me I loved research and then veering back into graduate school. So I had a, a long and winding weird road. Uh, I could go on for a long time, but I don't think that's what your listeners want to hear about. So let me let me stop there and just say a lot of accidents, a lot of sort of um, forced moments where I had to do something. And then I discovered what it truly uh, what what I was truly passionate about through through that. So when when you were, um, you know, obviously, like you're highly educated. Did you always think that you wanted to be an academic? Was that like like part of no. like, the plan? <laughs> 
definitely no, I mean, not. That wasn't part of the, that wasn't one of, so what accident? So how did you end up like, like if I was to go back and like get in a time machine and it's like, you know, 15 years ago and talk to a younger version of you and say, Hey, like, what do you think you're going to be when you're at Princeton? What did you think that you were going to end up doing after Princeton? I love that you think I was an undergraduate 15 years ago. That makes me feel really good because it's been a fair bit longer than that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, if we get in a time machine, go further back than 15 years ago to when I was an undergrad, and I won't tell you how much further back, um, I thought, you know, maybe I was going to work on Wall Street. I spent some time in investment banks. Um, some sort of business or entrepreneurship sounded appealing because, again, I had a head for numbers and I liked practical applications and solving problems. It really was that I had to do a, a research project in order to graduate. I was required to. And then I just found that I loved it. So the project I, I decided to do, as I mentioned, was this strange project where I was crunching the numbers on what New Yorker authors had written about. I literally spent like hundreds of hours reading short stories and classifying their features. This was before you could download a, you know, a corpus of text. I had to go physically and take these old bound copies of New Yorkers out of the library and read them myself because you couldn't do a word count, like all the algorithmic things that we could do today. None of that was possible. Uh, but I discovered things that I was fascinated by. And I would show up at dinner with my friends and say, hey, I have to tell you about what I learned today. You know, I, I crunched the numbers on this and I found that um, women authors, female authors write about male protagonists more often than male protagonists write about female ones. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Why do you think that that's the case? And every time I would find out an interesting fact like that, I was just totally obsessed with it. I was so excited, so intrigued, desperate to talk about it. And I was like, wait, I could do this with my life. Or I could make spreadsheets of, um, you know, accounting statements and try to forecast companies future earnings per share. I think I'll do the thing that gets me this excited um, when I wake up in the morning. So that's what led me to try to, you know, pursuing a PhD. Even then, I wasn't sure that being an academic was really what I wanted, because I had this stereotype of academics as, as, um, you know, sitting in an ivory tower, not doing work that really impacted lives. And it wasn't until I got to graduate school and found out about the opportunities to really partner with organizations and try to solve practical problems uh, in important ways that had uh, big impact that I was c convinced, okay, this is the path for me. Um, I've been doing research for the last roughly 15 years on um, the topic of, of how do we help people change their behavior for good. And that was fueled in part by seeing what a huge impact it could has, have if we could just improve people's health decisions. So one of my favorite statistics that I learned at the start of this journey was that um, of all the premature deaths in this country, and there are a lot of them, unfortunately, um, you can actually break down their attribute or their what, what predicts them, what causes them. Um, some of them are due to environmental uh, circumstances. Some of them are due to genetics um, accidents. There's a whole long list, but it turns out the biggest wedge in the pie graph of causes of premature death is actually decisions that we make that we could change. 40% of premature deaths is the estimate are due to decisions we could change on a daily basis about what we eat, drink, whether or not we're physically active, whether we buckle up when we get into a car, um, you know, whether or not we smoke. These seemingly small daily decisions accumulate and have these huge outcomes. They have these 
you know, huge implications. And once I learned that, I saw that this work that, uh, you know, I was starting to get interested in doing to try to figure out what are the ways that people make imperfect decisions. It could be applied in an incredibly powerful and important way. We could literally save lives, um, millions of them. And that, that was what fueled my, th- those things, both the sort of seeing my passion, how much I love doing the work intrinsically when I found interesting things, and also that it could be applied and solve important practical problems. So that combination. And so um, fast forward to, and, and you're obviously your, your, uh, your background's impressive, right? Like Princeton to Harvard to Wharton. That's like, it's like, which school do you like best? <laughs> I want to know, like, I'm like, I mean, lucky. like, those, yeah, they're all like, they're all like, they all like battle each other for like, you know, supremacy. Like if you're like, if you have to identify with one of those schools, which one do you identify with most? Um, oh my gosh, that's a really hard question. You know, um, the place that shaped my mind the most was certainly the first, right? The place you show up as an 18 year old with no idea what you want to do with your life and, um, no real understanding of what the opportunities are out there and what the problems are in the world, I think has to be the one that shapes you the most, right? There's just, so at Princeton, I started to understand the powerful ways that I might be able to impact the world. Um, as opposed to just being someone who ingests information and sort of spits it out on a test, I started to generate knowledge there. And that, so that was really a powerful experience. And I fell in love with knowledge generation at Princeton. So that's probably the place I identify with most strongly. But I I love all the institutions I've had the incredible good fortune to be a part of. And what I love about all of them is also that um, despite being these, you know, incredibly rarefied institutions that um, have been around and PS have some really ugly history, all of them. Um, Right now they're really committed. I think each of them to making education um, more of a level playing field. None of them give, they all give only grant based aid. Um, Anyone who qualifies uh, to and is admitted can come for free if their family earns under a certain amount of money. Um, And they really, they have, vastly increased the number of undergraduates on Pell Grants. Um, and they're really incredible platforms of sharing knowledge and building uh, a more diverse and equitable world. So I wish there were more institutions like them. And and P.S., of course, like state schools are absolutely incredible powerhouses for doing the same thing at an even larger scale. But I just feel very privileged that I've gotten to be part of all these institutions. And I love the work they do. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I, I have a, a friend who... Um... He went to he graduated from Williams and he was I think they were one of the first schools, maybe it was either Harvard or Williams that did need blind, right? So this is like this need blind where anyone if it like, oh no, your parents, you know, especially now, I mean it's like insanely expensive to go to these schools, right? So like it the, the fact that there's this ability to create that opportunity, I think that that's incredible. And yeah, to your point, like that's that's really cool that you've been able to leverage those experiences to to be able to start to create this type of value outside of those institutions. So let's talk about the book. Um, so for number one, congrats, writing a book is a gnarly pain in the ass and you did it. Yay. Is this your first book or have you written multiple books? I, I, sorry this is I my check. first. No, don't. No, this is my first book. Uh, I, w- I had my head down um, writing research papers for all the time before this. And this is my first effort to sort of say, okay, wait a minute. I've got a whole bunch of things from all this research I've done that are actually worth saying to a broader audience outside of academia. So um, it was quite an adventure and and a really fun one. So thanks for the congratulations. 
Yeah, so I wrote a book, and so I know. I know the pain. It's a, <laughs> and, and, and I probably didn't do as much research as you did on your book. But um, but writing a book, you know, it's, it's your baby. They, and then they, they call it the killing your baby, right? So as you, like, edit it to something that, that people are willing to sit down and read. And, and for listeners, you will appreciate what I'm about to say. You know, you have to earn a reader's interest one page at a time, right? Because, like, I, I'm a person. I'm a pretty aggressive reader. I try to get through about a book a week. And... Um, and like I, I always tell people, if I finish your book, it means that there was four other books I didn't finish to get to your book. So, so that's it's really a, it's a huge feat to do it. Um, let's talk about the book. So, uh, the book came out in twenty twenty one. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Twenty twenty one. Man. And so, um, like, what was it? You were doing the work, and you saw this opportunity that that you could help people change their habits, right, or, or change their behavior. Um, you know, and, and forgive me, like in the, it, at Wharton, what, what class are you teaching? Are you teaching around this like behavioral economics around change? Uh, what, what is the exact classes you're teaching there? Yeah, I teach a class to MBA students called managerial decision-making, and it's all about how to make better decisions and create change both at the individual and, um, sort of organizational level through changing the decisions that individuals make. So it's very related. Okay, cool. And so, um, you know, I want to I kind of go through the book, you know, and, and, you know, I took notes chapter by chapter. Um, so I want to just kind of go through chapter by chapter because there were some real, some highlights that really stood out to me. Um, and so like in the beginning of the book, you start talking about this idea of fresh starts, right? And people like being open to change, you know, some examples would be like a meaningful life event or the first of the new year, you know, t- can you talk us through like when people want to make changes, Why is it that structuring them around a meaningful event or creating a quote unquote, as you call it, fresh start? How does, why is that so important for trying to create change? Why can't people just say, screw it. I'm just going to go out and like, like be like me today who decided, well, though today's Monday and it's a fresh start. I'm, I'm doing a water fast today and I chose Monday for it. So maybe use me as an example. Like, why is that? Why is that such an important? Why did I choose Monday? Why is that important? Why should people think about these things as they're building their game plans against these opposite? Uh, you know, I, I wrote in my, my notes like opposition to change. Right. Why is it that fresh starts is so important? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that if someone is feeling motivated to make a change on an arbitrary on a Wednesday in the middle of the month that is not meaningful in any way, I would always encourage them to do it. Um, we we step forward to change too infrequently. We tend to escalate commitment to the paths we're on and pursue big new goals at too low of a rate. So whenever you feel the motivation, you should seize it. What our research on Fresh Start shows, though, is that there are moments when people are more likely to feel that motive than others. Those moments arise at the beginning of any new Um, cycle in our lives, whenever we feel like there's a chapter break in the story that we're telling about ourselves. And those chapter breaks can be small, like the start of a new week, or more meaningful, like the start of a new year. We know all about New Year's resolutions. They can be even bigger, right? You, um, You celebrate a major birthday, or you switch jobs or move to a new home. Those are moments when in the story we tell ourselves about our lives, we feel like we're, we're turning the page and there's a new chapter and a new beginning. And at those moments, what we found is that people feel like their past self is further away. So, 
you know, last year it's New Year's um, Day. I'm it's January one, and I'd say, okay, this year I'm going to quit smoking. Last year I didn't, but that was the old me, and this is the new me, and the new me is going to be different. So we feel separated from the past failures, which gives us a sense of optimism, and we also are more likely to step back and think big picture about our lives at these junctures. When you're making a move, when you're celebrating a birthday, when there's a turning point in on the calendar or a, a shift to a new role, um, you know, a lot of our life we live just sort of like going, you know, you're answering in the emails on your phone, or you're just you're doing and you're not thinking big picture. And so those disruptions cause you to step back and reflect. And those two things we we believe from our work are both really important um, to motivating or producing this fresh start effect where we see big upticks in the rates at which people, for instance, set goals on popular goal setting websites, search for the term diet on Google, visit the gym, we see these spikes um, at the beginning of a new week, month, year, following birthdays, um, following holidays that we associate with fresh starts. So it happens naturally. And then we also show that these are opportune moments to actually encourage someone to make a change. If you highlight to them on the calendar, for instance, the start of spring or an upcoming birthday and invite them to make a change at that time, you see that people are much more attracted to doing so than if you just point out, oh, you could do this in a couple months and don't raise the point that, oh, and that will correspond to your birthday. Um, The alignment of fresh start dates um, with an opportunity to change excites people and makes them um, more willing to say yes. So fresh starts are a good opportunity. If you're not feeling the motivation, that's a moment when you may feel the motivation more, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to. And so it's a good time to start to change. And if you're thinking about how to encourage someone else to make a change, similarly, you may want to look for fresh start dates. They may be more open and receptive to encouragement to try something new, to pursue a big new goal at that on that timeline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. So, like, are there any, in your guys' research, were there any dates that were, like, I mean, obviously, New Year's resolutions, but we, we know the data that says, like, 90% or 99% of people, like, fall out, fall, fall off the wagon within three weeks of setting their New Year's resolution. I think it's some some really terrible number like that. Is there any, is there any particular dates that you're like, these are the best dates that people should consider? I, I actually, New Year's is a great one. And uh, I love that you brought up the fact that lots of them fail. Uh, P.S. So first of all, if you get more people setting goals or pursuing change, you're going to have higher rates of failure because you have more people who are like, meh, this isn't really important to me. So when you move more people who are not that committed into the act of goal pursuit, of course, you see actually higher failure rates. That doesn't mean that the... the um, that more people didn't achieve goals than would have otherwise. Does that make sense? Right. Cause you, you want more sure. people trying to make change. So you are, you should expect to see higher failure rates when you get more people who are less committed to do something. Um, but in general, I think actually the lesson of what those high failure rates is not about fresh starts. There's nothing wrong with new year's as a time to start. It's great that more people are trying. It's actually the methodology they're employing once they've committed to pursuing a goal. And that's what basically the rest of my book is about. It says, okay, first we have to deal with the problem of just committing to try because most of our lives were like, no, I'm good. I don't want to change. Um, and we say that too often. So the first thing is, okay, find a fresh start moment. And that may be the moment you'll, you're willing to take the leap. But then second, you need to take the leap with a parachute. Like you need a plan. You need a whole right. set of tools that is going to allow you to succeed when you try to change as opposed to being one of those statistics that doesn't get anywhere and three weeks later is quitting. Um, but, you know, goal achievement is hard. So I don't think we would ever want to see 100% success rate. Frankly, if we did, we'd know basically people are setting wimpy goals. Um, right. So I also I, I think the failure statistics belie the usefulness of fresh starts for a number of reasons. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, you know, you talk a, a bit about, you know, how people like essentially doing the right thing is not satisfying, right? So I'm going to use again myself. Darius today is like, I'm going to do a water fast. Like I'm, it's like 3.30 in the afternoon. I've not had anything to eat. I've drank a lot of water and I don't feel great. So this is not Sorry. satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Like this is not satisfying. It's not gratifying. You may but not you have about... the happiest memories of this conversation, by the way. And it's not me. It's that you were really hungry. 
<laughs> but you're going to misattribute it. That, that's called projection bias. We could have a whole separate conversation about that. But anyway, I'm sad that you won't remember me fondly, Darius. No, no, you're making this way better, just so you know. You've, you're actually turning my, my hangriness into happiness. So, um, <laughs> um, but, you, but one of the things that you talk about is this idea of temptation bundling. And so, you know, I'd love for you to talk about what is temptation bundling? How can we use it to make these short-term, like, non-satisfying, you know, issues when we're trying to build new habits into something that's more meaningful? Or how can we, you know, stop ourselves from these negative temptations, leveraging temptation bundling? I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. So uh, this one's a huge one for me, which is that, yeah, most goals are no fun to pursue in the moment, right? You're like, I got to go to the gym, but oh, it's going to be miserable. Or I really need to do, um, you know, the laundry, but God, I really don't want to spend my time that way. I want to just binge watch the latest episode of episodes of Bridgerton or, um, you know, it's really time to take out this difficult mentee, uh, and sit down with them and talk about some of the issues they're having, but that is going to be such a miserable conversation, whatever it is that you're dreading, right? Whatever feels like a chore, you know, you need to get it done. How are you going to motivate yourself to actually execute on the painful, you know, it's important in the long run, but in the short term, the experience is, is pretty excruciating. So, um, one of the tools that I have studied for, I'll say solving this problem or helping to solve this problem is, is what I call temptation bundling. And the idea is pretty simple. What if you um, combined a temptation with the chore you would otherwise dread and only allowed yourself to have access to that temptation while doing the chore? So for instance, I can only binge watch Bridgerton on TV while I'm simultaneously um, exercising on my elliptical. Otherwise, no Bridgerton, right? Well, all of a sudden, I'm going to waste less time when I should be doing other things watching Bridgerton, I'm, time is going to fly while I am exercising. It's no longer going to feel like a, a chore because I'm so engrossed. I won't even notice the pain of my workout. Um, and I'm going to look forward to the workout at the end of a long day instead of dreading it, right? So that would be an example of a temptation bundle. You could also imagine, you know, you could do it in lots of ways. The the difficult mentee meetings. What if you only let to go, get to go to a burger restaurant whose greasy patties you crave but shouldn't eat too many of um, when you're spending time with that difficult mentee? Or, um, you know, favorite podcasts you can only listen to when you're doing your household chores. There's lots of different combinations you can create so that something that's alluring is combined with something that would feel like a chore to change the immediate experience. And because we're really bad at delaying gratification, if we sort of re-engineer our important experiences so that they have this dopamine hit they provide while we're engaging in them, um, we're not going to procrastinate and we're going to get a lot more important goals achieved. Okay, that makes sense. So I I see that now. So next, so it's, it's I think the 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 easiest one for me to understand because when you're talking about like the binge watching ver, um, was good because I was like, oh, I, I did that. I watched literally like eight seasons of Breaking Bad at the gym. Perfect. Right? So you've done it, and you're. We actually ran scientific experiments where we you know randomly assigned some people to have an opportunity to temptation bundle and others not. And um, measure the impact and the, you know, we see substantial benefits in terms of things like exercise. There's some research even on um, that it can help students persist longer on difficult math problems to temptation bundle their their worksheets with, uh, you know, listening to music and enjoying snacks. So there's different ways we can create these bundles, but it can increase everything from exercise to productivity. 
Gotcha. So um, another uh, uh, terminology that, that I picked up was this idea of, of a commitment device. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'd love for you to talk about that because, because, you know, I think there's different ways you talk about it in the book, but, but yeah, what's a commitment device and how can one use a commitment device to, again, try to make those hard changes become a, a, a big change that affects them in a positive way? Yeah, this is um, a great question. So commitment devices really change the opposite side of the equation we just talked about, right? So there's something that you know you need to do. It's going to be miserable in the moment, but it's good for you in the long run. And because of the way humans are wired, we're what's called present bias. We overvalue the instant gratification. We undervalue the long-term re- returns. And so we're like, yeah, I'll go to the gym tomorrow. I'll have that difficult meeting tomorrow. And then tomorrow becomes today and we procrastinate, right? So one solution is change the experience in the moment. Make that experience in the moment more fun. So you don't want to put it off. The other side of the equation that you can futz with is make it more of a problem. If you put it off, make the cost Mm. even higher if you put it off so that now like you can no longer ignore it. You can no longer put it off because now, you know, the, the cost is just too large. That's a commitment device. So to be more concrete, if you think about the way we're used to being managed by other people, right? You've got a boss who wants you to get something done and knows you'll put it off indefinitely if they don't give you a deadline. So they give you a deadline and they say, if you don't turn it in by this date, like you're fired or you're not going to get your bonus or, you know, or that's implied. So like, get it done. Um, We get deadlines. We're used to governments giving us similar kinds of reward schemes, um, parents, um, you know, think about like how if you, you might be tempted to speed on the highway, but you know, you'll get a ticket potentially if you do. So they're slapping a fine on you. So we're used to being managed by others in that way. who are trying to set up incentive schemes to ensure we behave well and don't give into temptations, but we can actually self-manage in the same way. And it sounds very counterintuitive, but a commitment device is basically when we employ these techniques, not on someone else, not on our children, not on the employees we're managing, not on the citizens of the you know, country we're running, but literally on our future self. So um, you can literally find your future self, for instance, if you don't achieve a goal. Um, one of my favorite forms of commitment is a cash commitment device, which is you can put money on the line that you will have to forfeit to maybe a cause that you hate, um, choose a referee who will hold you accountable uh, and, and report on your success. And then that money goes away. If you don't say, you know, um, get to the gym three times this week to stick with the goal we've been thinking about in terms of temptation bundling, either you binge watch Bridgerton or, um, breaking bad at the gym, or you find yourself for not going a certain number of times. Um, so there are websites like bminder.com, stick.com. I'm sure there are more. I have no affiliations with any of these, I should say, uh, that allow you to literally put money on the line and choose a referee who will hold you accountable. And there's randomized controlled trial evidence showing this is an incredibly effective way to increase the likelihood you'll follow through, right? Nobody wants to get fined in that way. One of my favorite studies involved um, smokers who wanted to quit, and they were randomly assigned to either a... Um, smoking cessation program with all of the sort of standard bells and whistles to try to help make it easier. Or they got that standard smoking cessation program and an account uh, where they could put money that they would then have to forfeit if they failed a nicotine or cotinine urine test six months later. Right? So they don't have to put the money in, but it's available. They can basically stick cash in this place and know that they will lose it if they don't pass this urine test. And what these researchers found, and this is a team involving um, Dean Carlin and of uh, Northwestern University and others, they found that um, there's a 30% higher success rate quitting smoking if you just have access 
to this account you can put money in. They're not even, it's not even about using it, right? Just having access to it. Using it, of course, is the reason it's effective. Um, but you can't force people to put money down. Um, just the option to do it is is creating this huge value. So it's a really interesting, I think, option for many of us. And, and a lot of people don't recognize that there are different ways, you know, of course, just telling somebody this is my goal and asking them to check back on how you're doing. Sure. Now you're creating shame, which is another form of penalty. That's like a, a very mild commitment device, but you can up the ante on yourself and, and make it more extreme with these kinds of cash commitments. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I like that. that putting your money where your mouth is. And and and, and uh, to your point, like some of those online, um, and, and I didn't know the names of them. I was actually trying to look one up. But to your point, there's these online uh, you know, apps where it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, you know, lose X number of pounds by Y date. And if I don't have to pay thousand bucks, you know, like uh, just having that little nudge, I think is super important. Um, what do yeah. you like? Uh, so is it always money or is there other ones that are maybe as softer. effective? Yeah. Well, I don't know if softer is the right <laughs> word because I, it's not about softer. I think for some people, money is just not something that they have enough of where they can leverage it. Right. Where they're, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's going to be hard for you to like, like go into credit card debt. You know, maybe that is a good incentive. I don't know. No, no, that's, it's a very, very fair point, right? There's like, we don't need to add insult to injury in situations where, you know, maybe, and, or maybe your goal is financial. And so finding yourself for not achieving your financial goals, like pretty (laughs) counterproductive. That's absolutely right. right. So, so it doesn't have to be a cash commitment device. Those have been proven effective. Um, they're useful, but there are absolutely all sorts of ways that you can think about what is it that would be painful for you if you um, had to forego it uh, due to a failure to achieve a goal. And you can set up all sorts of informal mechanisms, right? You could have a, if you have a partner, it could be like, you know, they take your phone um, and you're not allowed to use your phone from 5 p.m. to, to midnight or whatever, whenever you come back from work, say you work nine to five, like they get your phone or you don't get access to social media. You can think of what's the, no ice cream for a month. If I do X, it's like a swear jar, right? Which that's a cash version, but you can think of any sort of penalty or you clean, you know, you mow the lawn for the next month if, and uh, so it doesn't, there's no need for it to be cash. There's all sorts of ways you can create a cost um, associated with a failure to achieve an important goal. And again, it can be, you know, shame by telling somebody who you really care about their opinion of you, what you're going to accomplish. And then they find out and you're embarrassed or it can, you can up the ante more, um, all the way to cash. Cool. So let's talk about laziness. And you talk about how laziness has its upsides. I was like my, my, my late father who hated laziness was rolling in his grave as I, as I read this. So let's talk about laziness. How can we use laziness for the good? As you, as you mentioned in in your book, I'd love to talk about this because I was like, this is crazy. I've never heard this before. I'd love for you to talk about it. Yeah, I, I actually think, you know, all the features of human nature that we think of as bugs can also generally be flipped to be useful if we think about it carefully or there are contexts where they can be use, put to good use. So um, keep in mind, my PhD is technically in computer science. So this is this is like 
think about the way a computer algorithm works, which is something I like to do. And the very best algorithms in the world are incredibly lazy. They're very efficient. They find um, shortcuts to get to the answer as opposed to like brute force checking every possibility, right? So if you think about like Google and how it does search, it doesn't like check every website on every page on the internet to see if the word that you asked um, is there. It has it has shortcuts it takes in order to try to, you know, pare down the option set and, and make the problem much more tractable. So algorithms are lazy. And it turns out the human operating system is also lazy. We are built to look for the easiest way to solve any problem. We look for shortcuts and we take them whenever we can. But once you actually recognize that about human nature, you can try to structure your life to make it so that the path of least resistance leads you directly to achieving your goal. And that is that is what I recommend doing in a number of different ways. There's sort of two ways I write about this and think about this in the book. One is using something that's sort of, I would say, the um, uh, the darling of behavioral economics. Like our, our biggest success story is the recognition of the power of what's called a default. The option you end up with if you don't lift a finger and you just like take um, take the settings installed on your computer. There's a whole bunch of defaults. There's like a default background that comes with your computer. There's a default font. There's a default size of all of the things. There's like a default browser built in. And whatever those defaults are, most people are like, sure, whether it's Chrome or something else, <laughs> whether it's right. Internet Explorer and PS. Anyway, there are many lawsuits related to this in Microsoft and antitrust that are kind of interesting. Um, we just accept defaults pretty passively, dramatically more likely to accept defaults than to change because we're lazy. So if you can think about how can you use defaults to help set yourself up for success, you can achieve a lot of good there. So defaults can be things it, we talked, you talked about healthy eating what's in your fridge and your pantry and what isn't right. What's the default snack mm. available. Like now I have to exit the house. <laughs> like I have to go do a whole lot of extra work, but if I just open the fridge and this is what I find, I mean, that's a really obvious and easy one. Um, you want to create as little friction and make it as easy as possible to do the things that you want to achieve and make it as friction filled and difficult and challenging to do the things that are bad for you. So, um, these, you know, think about things like having the the workout equipment in your house, having the Peloton instead of having to get to the gym, or, um, you know, if for the, to the extent that there are other productivity habits that you want to achieve, you want to not have the certain um, certain games or distractions on your phone or on your computer, whatever the and and have your default web browser take you to. Um, maybe the Wall Street Journal, so you're getting the news of the day, as mm. opposed to Facebook, so you're getting garbage. Excuse me to anyone who adores Facebook and uses it more productively than I do. Um, so <laughs> nobody says no. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so some people are using it. I'm sure better than I am. Um, but these are so those are that's one way to think about leaning into laziness as a as a tool as opposed to an obstacle. And the other is um, habits are essentially. Those are the default of our personal operating system. And so um, in addition to trying to change the defaults in your, in your life, in your physical space, in your digital space, so that they're helping you achieve your goals as opposed to um, facilitating the wrong choices or choices that you wish you were making less, you can think about um, how do you put, how can you be deliberate about creating habits, which are your automatic reactions to situations that that support your goals as opposed to habits that don't. And through that, you need to basically um, do a bit of engineering. Uh, and the way that habits are formed is, is which PS has been written about extensively before in lots of wonderful popular books, like um, 
the uh, power of habit and atomic habits, I think really get the science on this right. It's pretty simple. Basically like practice creates habits, um, practice in, um, in, in performance environments that are, uh, similar over time, right? Like every morning you wake up, you brush your teeth before you do anything else. And like, that becomes a habit um, sure. or, or making coffee and you get the reward of that. And, and then eventually it goes on autopilot, but you can be deliberate about building habits by trying to have a period, a burst of intensity, making sure you um, provide rewards for yourself after successes. Uh, and, and that there is real value in investing in those habits because of the fact that they now mean that laziness is on your side as opposed to uh, working in opposition. So those are the sort of two ways. Yeah, that makes sense. And like the way I thought about that when you were explaining that is, let's say I'm like trying to eat healthy, making sure I don't have junk food in the house, right? Like throwing it all away. I, I interviewed um, BJ Fogg, uh, who wrote Tiny Habits, and and we and I, and I asked him specifically what was his like Achilles heel habit that he had to break, and his was he had an addiction for popcorn, which is which is kind of funny because he was like like embarrassed to admit it, and they wouldn't let him put it in the book. And, um, and, you know, and he's, a, he's this amazing guy, but he's like, look, I had to like, it was a real problem, Darius. I had to like literally take the popcorn maker and put it in my attic. Like I would hide it in the attic and like, there was no kernels of corn in my home. I had to go to the store. It was like a total pain in the ass. Right. So that was how I quit this like lifelong popcorn addiction. Um, which was kind of a funny thing because there's people that struggle with real addiction, like heroin or, you know, like, like, right. like opioids or something. And so that, that's why they didn't let him put it in the book. But, but it kind of proves the point of what you're talking about, which is like, if I have to go climb a ladder to go get my popcorn maker, I'm probably not going to do that. It's just not going to happen. You know, um, like for me, like I, during COVID, I was never like, I never drank hardly ever, but like during COVID, I'd start drinking like two beers a day. And then before I knew it, like I was like wanting two beers a day every day. And, and I was like, all right, like I told my wife, my wife was just buying it and I was going through two beers a day, which is not a lot, but, but it was like, it was gaining weight because I was drinking two beers for no reason. And, and so I was like, look, no beers. I like those beers too much. Like if they're in front of me, I'll drink them. And so I have to go to the store. Like I'm probably not going to do that. It's too much work. So I I love that. It's like being thoughtful. I, I have a really good friend where he says, exercise is a five minute decision or sorry, it says exercise is a one minute decision. You either put on your running shoes or you don't. And so a lot of people put their running shoes next to their bed, right? And it's like, first thing I see is my running shoes, I'll put them on, right? So is this, are they, am I thinking of this the right way? Like, what Yeah, and about? I want to give a shout out to um, Wendy Wood, who's really the researcher who's done the best work in the world on habits, sort of the thought leader on all this. She has a book, by the way, called Good Habits, Bad Habits. Um, BJ Fogg is a very nice uh, writer and practitioner, but he mostly builds on, on Wendy's original research. Um, Got it. and, uh, and she has really done extraordinary work showing the importance of reducing frictions and has a fabulous postdoc, um, who I just want to give a shout out to as well as off Mazar, who has some fabulous work looking even at vaccines. And, um, those of us who happen to live further from vaccine sites, um, just a little extra friction, we're far less likely to sort of be in the early, um, vaccine adopter groups and, and, and eventually get vaccinated. So small things like, oh, you have to drive an extra mile, uh, often create additional friction, even on really important decisions. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I know I want to respect, uh, our time. And so we probably have time for one more question, although I have like 10 more. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask my one question and then I'm going to, we're going to go to the greatness question. Um, but you talk about this, this perspective around, um, giving advice helps us to act. 
and how and, and my question was like how do you like hey what does that mean like by giving advice to someone how does that help me act and then how do we harness this power if we're going to go do that yeah, I'm so glad that that you went there because this is one of my favorite insights about behavior change, partly because it's so counterintuitive. So first of all, let me say that this comes from research by Lauren Eskris Winkler of Northwestern University, who in doing her dissertation work was trying to figure out what does it take to create really positive behavior change. And she was looking at people who are actually really struggling. And she started interviewing them and asking like, what might help you? People, you know, people who salespeople who couldn't hit their numbers, um, students who couldn't get good grades, goal seekers of all from all walks of life with personal goals that they weren't achieving. Like what, what's going wrong here? What would help you? And she heard this chorus of one fabulous insights from people who we normally assume like, well, they're, you know, nothing's going right for them. So they must not have much insight. So she's like, whoa, wait a minute. They know a lot. And B, like this enormous delight at being asked uh, because they can be like, no one ever asks us our opinion. People are always like coming up to us and giving us all this advice and assuming we're completely clueless. And it's really right. demotivating and demoralizing. Like, yeah, I know I should like, you know, put the popcorn maker in the attic and and throw out all the kernels like i didn't need you to tell me that right like thanks a lot that was apparent to me but i just you know i wasn't willing to do that or i right so people felt talked down to and they loved being asked for their wisdom and their insights were great and she said like what if we have the idea wrong like what if we keep giving advice to people who are struggling what we actually need to do is in many cases just boost their confidence by putting them on a pedestal and having them coach someone who's struggling even more than they are. So they can mm. see I'm not such a disaster. Maybe there is something I, I understand and know about this problem. And PS, while we're boosting their confidence and giving them this opportunity to coach and mentor someone who's even sort of further down on the ladder, a couple other magical things might happen. One, because they're on the hook to give advice to someone else, they're going to have to introspect more deeply about things that really would work for them. And right. they might not have bothered otherwise, because now I have to tell somebody else what they should do. Um, and then I'm going to feel really foolish and hypocritical if I tell you, you should throw out your popcorn maker or put it in the attic or whatever, right? I give you this advice mm-hmm. and then I won't do it myself. Right. So she thought all of those ingredients would operate together. And sure enough, in a series of experiments that she ran um, with others, and then I got to be involved in one that we did with um, high school students. Um, who were, we were trying to help them improve their grades. And so they advised younger high school students. This was work with also Dina Gromay and Angela Duckworth. We did this randomized controlled trial and showed that taking an eight minute quiz, essentially where you answered questions and you knew that your answers were going to be given to your younger peers about how to study more effectively and helped students improve their own grades, not the advice recipients grades, but the advice givers ended up getting better grades than a control group that didn't have the opportunity to advise their younger peers on how to study more effectively. And these, you know, these are small changes. So we're not turning mm-hmm. C students into valedictorians, but the act of introspecting about what could work for me and then offering that advice to you actually improves my performance on the same in the same domain. And so um, I, I think that insight is so underappreciated and so important that when we coach other people and PS, I'm a teacher, like through teaching, we learn, right? When we coach sure. other people, we get these enormous benefits ourselves in terms of our own competence. Um, and, and it's also, it feels great that there's all this research by my, particularly by my colleague, Adam Grant um, at Wharton 
on the power of giving and then it helps the giver. And this is another way we can give it. It's going to boost our confidence, our competence, and it just feels great to help other people. So it's this like magical win, win, win that I think we don't use enough. I love that. And it's funny, like, as you were saying that I was thinking like, like for two things I thought of number one is I'm, you know, this is, and this is goes to people who like tell someone they need to lose weight. I'm like, listen, guess who knows they need to lose weight? The person you're telling it to. Like, no one, there's not a really, you know, you don't think I look amazing? I'm at, you know, 45 BMI. Like, yeah, like they know. Like, like I, you know, I, I grew up in a family where the people struggle with weight. I'm like, everyone knew, knows when they're, when they need to lose weight. So you're never telling someone a negative that doesn't help them, you know, and, and to your point, like having them support someone else. And having to think through like the advice they're giving and then reflecting and saying, well, I'm not even doing that. And I'm giving this advice. Like I'm in a bunch of CEO peer groups, peer to peer groups. And we do a thing where we basically do experience sharing and you're not allowed to give advice. So you can only tell uh, like uh, help like solve a problem through an experience share. And more often than not, and there's many reasons we do it, but more often than not, I will be giving advice. I'm like, you know, I just gave that person advice and I haven't been doing that for two years. And it'll remind me to go do it. So you remind, like, literally reminded me of that situation that's happened numerous times. So when I'm coaching other uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs, I'll say, look, half of it's just you like thinking through the things you've done. And if you're telling someone else to do it, it'll remind you of the stuff that you know is a best practice, but you're being lazy about it or you forgot or you fell off the wagon. So I think that's fascinating because it is, to your point, super counterintuitive. Like it's not something we think of right off the top of our head that if I give advice to someone that's struggling more than I am, that it was going to remind me of what I should probably be doing as well. So I love that. That's, that's really smart. Um, I want, I got, I'm telling you, I'm so pissed at myself for like bookending this and scheduling like tight on the hour, but I really want to ask you a lot more questions. I don't have time, unfortunately. No, no, um, no, this is perfect. And I, I actually, I need to run it five two. So we're good that you bookended in, in that respect. And this has been so fun. Thank you for the great questions. Yeah, I love I love your stuff. I want to end on the greatness question, and then we'll plug all your the where people can get the book and find out more about your work. So uh, here at the greatness machine, we love the greatness question, and our greatness question is always the same. It is what is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you overcome in your life, and how did you overcome it? Yeah, that is a really hard question. And I'm sure that I'm not going to give you the true answer, but I'll give you an answer that comes to mind. Um, I think one answer that comes to mind for me is that uh, in academia, which is where I've mostly, you know, I'm spending my career trying to have an impact on the ideas people teach and the ideas people think are most important in the academy. um, I have never come at a problem um, with a single disciplinary angle. So all of my degrees, all of the departments I've ever sat in, um, they're in in-betweeners. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an economist. I'm not a computer scientist. I'm, I'm a nothing. I fit nowhere. And that has been an obstacle in trying to figure out, okay, who, who will listen to me and what voice do I use? You know, what journals do I write and what, how do I, um, what, what lens do I use to solve problems? But it actually also ended up being probably, uh, I, I think I turned it into an advantage accidentally. And many people, for many people, it's only a barrier, right? You sort of like give up because it's like, I don't know who I'm talking to. I can't find an audience. No one values my work because I don't fit into a a bucket or a category. And I'm sure that um, listeners who are thinking about 
their business, uh, you know, you know, what, what's your vertical, what are your verticals? People will recognize this challenge of like, oh, I don't know what category I fit in. But to me, then I sort of turned it into an advantage as opposed to a disadvantage by basically um, trying to bring together the best of different worlds and saying like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do things kind of differently. I'm gonna pull what I like from this field and what I like from this field, and I'll try to mush them together and design things um, in a way that's completely unique. And it's risky, but it's turned out for me to, to be an advantage. It's allowed me to um, do some different kinds of research that ended up uh, maybe being slightly more original than uh, what I would have done if I had been uh, sort of doing the next thing in, in a field that already existed and, and developing some new methodologies for approaching problems. So I guess that I'd say the biggest barrier is like not fitting in a category and then recognizing that by taking the best of the different categories, you could actually create something better. I love that. That's amazing. And it's just like connecting the dots, like these disparate dots. So that's, that's such an awesome takeaway. Katie Milkman, what an awesome interview. So much fun. Um, so the book is how to change the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. And, um, you have the podcast. We, we didn't go into that, but Choiceology, so people can check out the podcast. And also, katiemilkman.com is where they can find you. Anything else we want to plug here for people that want to connect and learn more about your work? Oh, gosh. Um, one other thing that I have been doing that has been a lot of fun is a monthly newsletter where I share interviews with my favorite scientists, and I call it Milkman Delivers. Um, so hopefully that'll make a few people chuckle. So if anyone wants another newsletter that, uh, that this one shares interviews about topics I find really useful that can help you make better decisions, um, check that out. And you can, you can subscribe at katiemilkman.com slash newsletter. Awesome. Guys, go check it out. The book, the newsletter, the podcast, everything Katie Milkman's doing and more. Katie, so, so much gratitude from here at The Greatness Machine. Appreciate you so much for joining us. Thank you for all the greatness you're bringing to the world. And we're really, really looking forward to much more coming from you and, and all the great work. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for the wonderful questions. And I hope that we'll get to talk again in the future. Awesome. Guys, we're out of here. Peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.